Well, we are in Psalm 134, and so let's turn there together. It's page 443 in the Pew Bibles. I'd love for you to have the text open because it's what God's Word has to say to us today that we're all here for. This is the last Psalm of Ascent, so we're beginning Holy Week, but we're ending our pilgrimage through this hymn book within the hymn book of the Jewish people, familiar songs not unlike our repertoires during our holy seasons, our Christmas songs, our Easter songs, that were familiar to every Jewish person because they would sing these songs on pilgrimage three times a year up to the temple, up to Jerusalem, often referred to in these psalms that we've studied as Zion, the holy city of God. And there they would have joyful celebration. Well, this is the last of the Psalms of Ascent. We're going to read it. You follow along as I read out loud. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. And that's it. It's actually the second shortest psalm in the Bible. And the shortest of these that we have studied during these 15 weeks together. It all fits neatly on one screen in large print. There it is. You can see the whole thing and begin to look at it and say, what, what, what about our pilgrimage in Jesus does this connect us to? Which has been the whole idea of the study. Praise the Lord in the house of the Lord. So there's an indication there that this song uh, has to do with the end. That's why we're calling this, this series, this, song, this sermon, Pilgrimage's End. It's in the sanctuary. It's in the house of the Lord. So they have arrived. They've been there a long time, actually. But who are the saints, all you servants of the Lord? Who is it that the psalmist is speaking to and encouraging? Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Well, to help you understand this a little better, I want to go back to show you some pictures of a, of a pilgrimage of sort that I had the privilege of being on. Uh, back in the summer of 2015 when I was part of a small team of people, a crack team of people that headed to Uganda as part of a missions trip to visit an orphanage uh, that as a church at the time, we, we across our church families, uh, sponsored as many as 40 of the children here, many of them former child soldiers, um, and, uh, and experiencing hope because of this orphanage and school. And so we got to go visit, and this picture is the team, and I still count these folk as among my dearest friends. There's Sonia to my right, and to my left, Michael Sullivan, who's the pastor of Emmaus City Church, another church plant in the city. We had the privilege of going with Carla Lopes, my good friend Dan, Dan the man, who celebrated a birthday over there. They, they do birthdays awesome in Uganda. They throw candy at you. <laughs> it's pretty, you can't top it, you just can't. Then they pray blessings over you. And then uh, Esther and Paul Maynard, good friend, and, uh, and then Andrea Gordon. Uh, great memories. This picture was taken our very last day there. We were about to climb into a bus and head back home. Uh, 
So I just want you to picture this. Before the departure, there was all the preparation as you do for a journey, and I could imagine similar to the children of Israel before their pilgrimage. There were meetings, there was fundraising, there were shots. That wasn't a very pleasant part. Everything you needed in order to get ready to go on your journey. And then there's the journey itself for us. Three different legs of long flights and then a long, bumpy ride. And at the time, my tailbone was broken, and so I felt every single bump in that road. But we finally got up from southern Uganda up to northern Uganda, and and we had an amazing week there. It was just amazing. This is clearly taken in late afternoon. The sun is setting. And it's taken under a tree where all the celebrations took place, the welcoming dance and the children danced for us, and they got us out there dancing. You can find videos someplace, and most of the team could dance really well. I couldn't. I, I, every, every dance I do, no matter what style, it turns into river dance because the only thing that moves is from the knees down. Disco, salsa, yeah, that's it. But we had just a great celebration there, and, and this was at the conclusion of their farewell blessing of us. They blessed us as we went. We prayed over them. We blessed them. It was a a parting. It was the end of the journey for us. But we wanted to capture a bigger picture with those who were there and who would stay there. The servants of the Lord who ministered to these children by night and by day. And that's the next picture. And, And Uh, Among these, there's Pastor David, great man of God, Justine next to me, a a sweet woman who grew our hearts for these kids. These were those that we were leaving behind, and before we left, we blessed them. We urged them on, keep loving these kids, keep honoring God, and then we departed. That's exactly the moment I believe this psalm is capturing for the children of Israel. Go back to it now. They have been there. They've completed their journey. They've, they've celebrated with great joy. These, these festivals were times of great celebration and worship, immense, beautiful worship in God's presence. And now their time was done. They're, they were getting ready to head home. I picture it being towards evening. I think uh, the families are picking up tired children after a wonderful day, getting ready to leave to head back to wherever they're spending the night only to head back down the mountain towards their mundane lives until the next journey back to Zion. And as they're leaving, they're blessing those who they're leaving behind. The priests, the Levites, who will stay there, who have given their whole life to serving in the temple and will continue. What they're basically saying to these servants, the priests, the Levites, is keep doing it. Keep worshiping. It comforts us to know that until we return, you're going to keep this worship going. They're calling out to them. That's why they are the ones who minister by night. Did you know that the Levites and the priests serve 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, and every fourth year, 366 days a year, although I don't think they use that calendar. (laughs) Nonstop before the Lord. And so the the children of Israel have finished their journey for now, and they're saying to the servants, some who are friends, keep on, keep worshiping. 
Keep God being blessed and honored. But then there's a turn. The last paragraph, the last sentence, is the priests and Levites blessing those who are departing. In the same way that we try to bless you after our worship services and pronounce a blessing and send you out from God's presence of a sorts when we worship, out into your sacred journeys. May the Lord bless you from Zion, that's Jerusalem, as you go. He who is the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, this is not just only the domain of God. Yes, the mountain is where he dwells in a manifest way, where the Ark of the Covenant resides, but the whole earth is his. You will find him where you go. And be sure as you do that you continue to bless the Lord and may the Lord bless you. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful closing of the journey. And that's why this is where the analogy for us of our pilgrimage in Jesus that we have found in their pilgrimage runs out. Kind of runs out here. Because our journey at this moment is quite remarkably different. Because something happened on the very week that we are entering into to celebrate, to change things so that things would never be the same. And how we worship and how we connect and relate with God would never be the same after Jesus did his final pilgrimage. Think about this. I love this thought. Jesus most likely sang these very Psalms of Ascent as he journeyed to Jerusalem for Passover. Before, and then when it says they sang a hymn and went out, it was probably a Psalm of Ascent. Jesus sang these very songs we've been studying before that magnificent triumphal entry into the city. Isn't that, doesn't that connect you with that in a powerful way? Yeah. But this time as he went into the city, something was going to change. The sacrificial system, the ark, the veil, the presence of God on the holy mountain had always been pointing to the events that were going to take place in this very week. And scripture says that when Jesus hung on a cross as the true Lamb of God, as he was called by John the Baptist, not just one among millions, but the very Lamb of God who will not take away the sins of just the people, but the very world, the whole world. When he hung on the cross, Matthew records an event in that very temple that in this church we're familiar with because if you hang out with me, you know this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And this is the season we talk about it. But it's captured by Matthew in this verse. Let's say it together. Jesus again cried out loudly and breathed his last. At that very moment, the temple veil was ripped in two from top to bottom. Now, our, our reading of this is so focused on the, the suffering of Jesus, the seven last words that because this is said at the very end of it, and, and it's said at the moment when our Lord has surrendered to death, it's easy to overlook the importance of this. But I want you to understand the fact that Matthew records this 
in the very same instance he records the death of Jesus should actually be an indicator that it is not to be overlooked, but in fact treated with the significance of the death of Jesus himself. Because this is what he came to accomplish, was the ending of the old system to usher in a new. What was behind that veil? You should know this from two weeks ago, right? What was behind that veil? The Holy of, and what was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. The very thing that we saw when we celebrated the Psalm of Ascent that remembered the joy of Israel when the Ark was returned to the place where it belonged because that's where God was. That's what made the journey necessary and purposeful, the pilgrimage, was that we knew we were going to go up, we were going to meet God right there because that's where He is. It was during that very week, the very last time that it mattered that the high priest, because it was Passover, went behind that veil and sprinkled the blood of a lamb on the mercy seat. The last time that it would matter. Because on that day that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that lamb's blood became irrelevant. God was saying, and can't you picture it, Top to bottom, God reaching out of heaven and just tearing it away, saying this is not necessary anymore. The writer of Hebrews clearly understands that because he reminds us of the daily ministry of the priests in the temple and then the annual visit with blood into the Holy of Holies. And he says it with reverence, but he says it was an imperfect system that pointed to a perfect Savior who would come. And then he talks about Jesus. And he says, when Jesus' body was torn, he was the true veil. Think about that. <laughs> Once again, we see that the whole Old Testament system, the tabernacle was Jesus, the sacrificial system was Jesus, the ark pointed to Jesus. Now we see the veil itself was a foreshadowing of Jesus. When Jesus' body was torn, the way was made for all of us to enter into God's presence. And the writer of Hebrews looks at that very place that was once feared and entered into with trepidation. And he says, all of us, because we have now been sprinkled with the blood of the true Lamb of God, we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies. See? That's what the cross made possible. And that's what this whole system was pointing to. Now we enter into a new way of doing things. God is going to interact with his people differently. He's going to fulfill what he began with his people in the Old Testament by creating his ultimate people of Jews and Gentiles, of male and female, right? Of slave and free. And he's going to dwell with his people in a new way. And that happens at Pentecost. Jesus had promised it would happen when he said, my time is Almost over, I'm going to return to my Father, but don't worry, I'm going to send you someone who is like me. And that's important when you say that when he's talking about God. The Holy Spirit will come among you. See, this is pretty important. In the Old Testament, it was God the Father who predominantly interacted with people. 
and in, with the, the children of Israel. During the season that Jesus walked among us, being the ark of God, the flesh and bone ark, dwelling place of God on earth, it was the Son of God, Jesus the Son in the Godhead, who interacted with people. Today, it's the, whole, it's the season, it's the era of the Holy Spirit. And that began at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the people of God. And that is now true for anyone who has claimed Jesus as their Savior, who has asked for forgiveness of sins. The same is true of you. The Holy Spirit is, what has, is the person of God who has, by His presence, birthed you into the body of Christ, who has made you fit for God's presence, whose presence in your life is the guarantee of your eternal inheritance. You see, the Holy Spirit is not a commodity or an energy source. And your soul is not a lithium-ion battery that will ever run low on the Holy Spirit. That's really bad biblical doctrine. you got to plug into the Holy Spirit and get charged up again. No, the Holy Spirit is the person of God present in your life. And if you have the Holy Spirit, because of that, you have all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. And what that means is being filled with the Spirit isn't a question of how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but how much of you the Holy Spirit has. That's Holy Spirit 101 for you, right there. That's good teaching for you to understand. Because you need to understand that you are now where the Holy Spirit dwells. And that's why the Holy of Holies and the sacrificial system has been done away. In fact, the New Testament writers take all of that symbolism and now relate it to us as God's people. Paul does it in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Say this with me. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, because of what Jesus made possible, you are the vessel of God. Think about this. You are the ark of God. The hands and feet of Jesus. The dwelling place of God. You are. And that makes you a temple. And that's why we don't call this building a temple. We're stretching it by calling it a church. Because the church isn't the building, it's you. Right? I often talk about this. I love working in this space. My office is right behind that wall right there. I love being here. We come out into this space and it's empty. It's just a beautiful space. That's all it is. But when you show up, it becomes church. You see? You are the temple of God. But even more than that, Peter goes all the way and uses all the Old Testament allusions to the children of Israel and says, that's who we are. Let's say this together. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. If you were a Hebrew person, you would have recognized all this language to relate to the people of the covenant. And what Peter is boldly saying is that that is now us. Under the covenant of grace, we are that people.
And he includes that statement, a royal priesthood. That's us. So now if we go back to Psalm 134, and we see it now through this lens, how our journey, our pilgrimage becomes different. We don't ever have to leave the presence of God. We don't ever have to stop experiencing His presence, and that means we get to be the people that this psalm is talking to, the servants who serve the Lord by night and by day, who raise holy hands. That's us. And now we can take this to heart when the psalmist says, you, pray, keep on praising the Lord. Don't stop. Keep it going, you servants of the Lord, who minister by night and day in the house of the Lord. And then he says, lift up your heads. And most of you go, no, 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 now you've gone too far. (laughs) Raising your hand stuff, that's not me. I think we're a hand-raising church, at least some days, some Sundays. Father Lenz, I'm a hand-raising temple. Not all of us are, but I think there's a biblical precedent for all believers to think about raising their hands in worship. And it's from the Old Testament. Now, for some of you that you know, are from traditions where you've never done that, where for you worship is this. You know, that's your worship position. Um, I want to encourage you to think about it. And just to help you, I'm going to play a video. Uh, I played a few years ago. Tim Hawkins, Christian comic, doing a little primer on hand-raising in worship. Let, let's just take a couple minutes and, and let's watch it. And I know that each church has its own worship style, you know which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's, um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Am I here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> some of you are trying. You're like, I can't. I want to, Tim. I- Need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking, start slow, hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. 
And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three. <laughs> there you go. Now all of us can be hand raisers in church. In fact, let's, let's try it out. Let's try the Mufasa together. Let's just all, come on. Let's, come on. Come on. You can do it. There you go, Cliff. Good man. Little out of your comfort zone, the Mufasa. All right. You know what, you're doing the light bulb thing? Let's all do Mufasa, all right? Now, just close your eyes. If you picture this as a demonstration of your heart in worship, what, what comes to mind? What am I communicating physically when I have my hands this way? Well, for many of us, because we're so individualistic and kind of uh, seeking, you know, self-seeking, we think about this as a receiving mode. But I think historically, biblically, this is a giving mode. I'm offering to God. Because he's the, I'm offering myself to God. All that I am. But I'm also offering my brokenness. I'm offering my wounds. Uh, you know, I'm offering uh, my disappointments. I'm bringing them to him too because he's the only one that can bring gold out of them and cause good. See, I'm offering myself to him. I, I would like us to become more of that together. Yeah. So if we look at this passage from the ideas that we've incorporated in terms of us now being both the temple and the priests and the raising of hands and these different things, I think we can draw from this a snapshot of four aspects of how we praise or worship God. The first is as temples, everywhere we are is sacred. Everywhere you go is a place of worship. Here's the thing, no exceptions. <laughs> Comes with the deal. You invited Jesus into your life. He came. The Holy Spirit moved in. The Holy Spirit does not get out of your body when you drive 90 miles per hour in a 65. Contrary to other people saying that. I saw that in a bumper sticker or something. It's not true. That doesn't mean you drive 90 because you're grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't get out of you when you go to those places that you'd rather Jesus wasn't with you. Everywhere you are as a child of God is sacred. And that's both good news and probably really bad news for some of you. But if you want to be a worshiper of God, you have to understand you're the temple. Where you go, that place needs to be sacred. You're the one honoring God in it. Does that make sense to you? As priests, everything we do is sacred. There is an, an act that you do, either mundane or glorious, that cannot be for God's honor and glory and is not sacred. Everything you do. We're going to actually do a sermon series in the spring. Two weeks from today, we'll begin it at this campus. And it's going to be about how our work matters to God and how it's all sacred and how to honor God even in our our choice of careers or vocations or jobs. I'm looking forward to that. That's what this means. I'm a priest, whatever I am. If you're a janitor, you're a priest. <laughs> you're the president of a company, you're a priest. And you're both on equal par because everything you do 
is for God's glory, every bit of it, not yours. That also means as priests that we represent God to the world. It's not just my worship. I worship on behalf of a people. I intercede with God with the needs of the world and people around me. Then I also represent God to the world. I'm bringing God wherever I go and I'm pointing people to Him. That idea of by night captures this thought to me that every moment we live is sacred. Every single moment is a moment not to be squandered for selfish things, for idle things that dishonor God. Now that doesn't mean just sitting and doing nothing can't be sacred. I find a lot of sacredness in my nothing box as a man. Doesn't mean playing sports or having a good time rock climbing or or just watching people who are rock climbing and playing sports. Doesn't mean any of that is a waste of time, but just understand that it all needs to be sacred. It needs to be done in such a way that God's honored and given glory. And then our hands lifted, what that tells us is that everything we are is sacred. I want to say this to every single one of you. You are all created in God's image. You are all image bearers of God. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, God has made you worthy and fit through His grace for His presence. You are worthy. You are something that gives honor to God. And all of that, your weakness, your brokenness, the things you struggle with, and your brilliance, all are sacred. And all of us have brilliance in us and all of us have brokenness in us. All that we can give to God. And it's all sacred. God's going to use every bit of it for His glory. That's who we can be now. That's why we never leave. Our journey is life with God. And that's who He's called us to be. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? It's kind of convicting, yeah? This is the, I, I see that. I see the conviction faces out there. But it ought to also be inspiring, yeah, for you as well. There's one more aspect to this psalm that our particular translation leaves us missing out on. Uh, the NIV, everywhere where it refers to the Hebrew word barak in relation to God, it uses the word praise. So those two phrases, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Both those words are the Hebrew word barak. Now, there's an a important word in the third line. May the Lord bless you from Zion. You know what Hebrew word that is? You're, you're probably, if you're tracking, you can probably guess. It's barak. It's the same Hebrew word. So the psalmist is actually doing something that's uh, in Hebrew poetry that our translation misses. There's a symmetry. There's a, there's a dualism in this. And this is far more accurate of what he's trying to say. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And then, and may the Lord bless you. 
from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. And in this we see the real secret to who we are and the pilgrimage we are called to in Christ. As we make it our life's person to live in such a way that we are blessing God, which by the way means bringing him pleasure above all things. I live for his pleasure, his honor, and his glory. And blessed, by the way, is an active giving of oneself, what the lifting of hands indicates and speaks of. But here's the thing. We make that our priority, and we get God's abundant blessing right back at us. That's how it works. Reach for your own blessing, you'll never get it. Bless God, and you get everything. Not necessarily your current list. But the stuff God knows will bless you above everything. I, I love that. Uh, the Puritans wrote, who became eventually the, the Congregationalists in New England, wrote what was known as the Westminster Catechism. It was their way of teaching young men and women the basics of their faith. So if you were attending one of the old you know, downtown churches 150, 200 years ago, you'd have eventually gone through a class that took you through the catechism. And the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the main purpose in the Star Trek era? What is the prime directive <laughs> of man? And like a good student, you would have memorized and would have said this answer, which is quite accurate to what the Bible says. So let's, let's answer it together. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Now where did the Puritans get that idea from? Well, of course, the Bible. But I think partially from Psalm 24. What is the chief end of man? Bless the Lord, and then the Lord bless you. That's a journey I want to be on with you. Let's keep walking it together, and let's pray.